But right now we're continuing wrapping up our series in the title called The Five Solas from the Reformation. Our sermon this morning will be on Soli Deo Gloria, the final solas that we're talking about. Glory to God alone. So I'm going to read scripture and then we're going to dismiss the kids. So um, you could just listen. It's kind of bouncing around a little bit. We look forward in, the, in January, um, the, I think it's January 7th. It's the first weekend in January. We're going to be launching into our series on the book of Samuel, First and Second Samuel. That's where we'll be at for the, until the, for the, for the winter season anyway, into the spring. Uh, Samuel's actually one book. We have it in two books, but First and Second Samuel. So here, here are the scripture reading. Isaiah 43, verses 6 and 7. Hear the very word of God. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I have formed and made. Isaiah 43. 1 Corinthians 10.31 should be a somewhat familiar passage to many of you. It says... Again, the very words of God. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Romans chapter 11. Oh, chapter 11, verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How unscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his Counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might repaid, be repaid. Verse 36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. And we'll end on 2 Corinthians when we get there. Chapter 4, verse 3. Even if our gospel is veiled, you, you're not seeing the good news of Christ. It is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case... The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Verse 6, for Jesus' sake, excuse me, for God who said, let light shine, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. May God add the blessing of the reading of his word this morning. So kids, you're dismissed. Let's jump into this last sola. We wrap it up. It's kind of, for me, it's been really a walk through the park. Uh, We believe strongly in the five solas, been preaching them since I've been here and before that. So it's kind of been fun to go through and just revisit some things concerning the scriptures and the, and the five phrases, the five words that emerge from the Reformation that kind of summarize the Reformers' theological convictions in contrast to that which was being taught in the Roman Catholic Church. The Reformers themselves didn't come up with the neat package of the five solas, but they taught each one of them, and, and it came out from the Reformation uh, a little bit later on, guys like... Zwingli and Calvin, they were preaching it, they were teaching it, and then they came up with the five solas after uh, the, the initial Reformation started. Scripture alone was the first one we looked at. That the Scriptures are the only inspired, breathe out word of God. Therefore, it is fully authoritative. Not councils, not popes, but at the authority rests on the Scripture alone. It's infallible and sufficient for the believer. Sola gratia was left next. We said that grace was alone. That God has chosen and saved and redeemed sinners 
rescued them and redeemed them by his sovereign grace alone. We have no claim upon God. Sola gracia. Next was sola fide, that, that faith alone. God declares us justified by faith alone, that forgiveness and the righteousness of the sinner that is required to stand in the presence of God is not by any merit of our own or works of our own. It is in Christ alone who is imputed and counted his righteousness on our behalf by faith alone. Nothing the church can tell you to do, nothing the church can give you to do to appropriate that gift is by faith alone. And then last week, solas Christas. It is only through Christ alone that he alone is the mediatorial role, the role he plays as mediator as the high priest who dies in our place. He alone reconciles, redeems us, and brings us into a relationship with God. He alone lived a sinless life. He alone, therefore, is the Savior of the world. He alone died a penal substitutionary atonement and qualifies to be the Savior. He alone died for our sins and rose triumphant over death, sin, and hell, and alone qualifies as our Savior. And the benefits of this work of Christ, his righteousness imputed to us, sins forgiven, cannot and will not be received through sacraments of something the church can give you. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, not in merits. The Roman Catholic Church taught that in order to receive the benefits of Christ, the the efficaciousness of the cross, you must do the sacraments like infant baptism and communion and penance. Here's what I want you to see this morning as we get into Soli Dio Gloria. Is that as great as all the other solas are to a sinner who is dead in sin, who cannot and will not save himself, salvation, rescue from the punishment of sin is not ultimately about you and about me. Glory to God alone. Soli Deo Gloria was never chiefly about you or about me. It's about God. One of the, one of the reasons the Reformation uh, spoke about Soli Deo Gloria, and this is a kind of a side note, is that they looked at all the priestly duties and all this full-time ministry duties as something much greater and giving God more glory through the work of the church and through the work of the, 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 the ministry of the clergy. And the clergy and the laity, there was a divide between the two. And that what the clergy did was much greater in glory than what you would do on your regular job. And they taught and they brought in, I think, a, a proper way in which kind of knocking the clarity uh, or the priestly duties of the church down a notch or two. It doesn't mean that they don't have some authority and some position of authority to teach as the Bible teaches, but we are all priests before God. And that was something reformers really taught. So when they looked at uh, 1 Corinthians 10.31, whatever you do, it should be done by faith for the glory of God. It's saying whatever you do, whether you're a homemaker, whether, you're, whether you work in a hospital, or, uh, wherever you are, do it all to the glory of God that each of us has the ability to work and to work the way in which we are, have our vocation to give God glory in it. That's very important. So historically, in one sense, the Reformation kind of leveled the playing field as far as giving God glory. But the reformers emphasize that God is the one who is inherently glorious and the greatest evidence or the greatest earthly evidence of his glory manifested here on this earth is the redemption of sinners. And there's a danger, I think, as we look at giving glory to God in all that we do that we can actually take the focus off of him getting glory and the things that we do. That's secondary. 
The risk, I think, is rather than it being it about God and his glory, it's about how can I serve him? And then it becomes the focus is on me. You see, the fact that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and in Christ alone, without any meritorious contribution on our parts, safeguards the truth of soli deo gloria. God alone gets the glory. In a wonderful book called Soli Deo Gloria, David Vandren, Dr. Dave Vandren, he's a, a seminary professor, um, I think in California somewhere. But he wrote this. By holding forth soli Dio gloria as the lifeblood of the solas, we remind ourselves that the biblical religion recaptured by the Reformation is not ultimately about ourselves, but about God. Our focus so easily becomes self-centered, even when we ask the same important questions that occupied the Reformers, like... Where can I find God's authoritative revelation? How can I escape the wrath of God? What must I do to be saved? We talked about that. The other four solas provide necessary and life-changing answers to such questions, but solely Dio Gloria puts them in proper perspective. The highest purpose of God's plan of salvation in Christ made known to us in the scriptures. He says, it's not, our be- it's not about our beatitude, wonderful as that might be, The highest purpose is God's own glory. God glorifies himself through the abundant blessings he bestows upon us. End quote. So how do you come to that conclusion? How do you come to that conclusion? You know, like the other four solas we mentioned, I think we mentioned this each one. And I want to be careful. I'm talking about the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. We have brothers and sisters who love Jesus that are Roman Catholics. But the Roman Catholic Church would believe in some of this stuff. They, they believe that scripture is authoritative. They just hold their counsels at the same level. They believe that you need to have faith in God. They just add works. They believe that it's by grace alone, but then they say, well, you're washed at baptism. They believe that Christ died as atoning sacrifice for your sin, but they say the way to get that benefit is through the church. Same thing with soli deo gloria. Rome would never say that God is not glorious, that all glory doesn't belong to him. But the fact that the Roman Catholic Church and its work of infusing grace into your soul through the sacraments is needed for salvation affirms by the very nature of their teaching that all glory does not belong to God alone. But they share in that glory which God will never do. The reformers came to realize that how the the claims of the church of that day revealed the deceitfulness of the human heart to get glory. By adding anything, works, whatever it is, to our salvation is not giving God all the glory. Soli Deo Gloria. So let's look at it three ways. First, creation. Look at creation. We're going to go back to the beginning. Then we're going to look at the insurrection or the rebellion, Genesis 3, and what happened at the fall. And then the restoration to God's glory. And what is that restoration? If we're going to wrap our heads around glory, let's talk a little bit about it. The Hebrew word kabod literally means weightiness, weightness, weightiness, heavy. The idea is the person having glory is, is heavy in their position, in their honor, in their power or wealth. It is used to signify respect and honor and praiseworthy. Actually, the Hebrew word is also uh, um, used to talk about the shining light, which we read in 2 Corinthians, the shining light of God's presence 
The glory was the cloud by day and the fiery pillar by night that led the people through the wilderness, the Shekinah glory that filled the temple, the light that filled the temple and, and, and the tabernacle. Exodus 24 tells us that God's glory was a consuming fire on the Mount of, of Sinai. Thomas Watson is an old Puritan gentleman called God's glory the sparkling of deity. I like that. The New Testament word is doxa. Doxa, signifying again value and reputation and honor, uh, denoting God's majesty and, and, and perfection. I have a verse up there, Isaiah 6, a good place to look to see about glory. He says this, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. We know the word holy is the word where we get the word separateness from, that God is separate from evil and darkness and sin. And, and he is separate from all that is which is common. In fact, God's uniqueness, his, his otherness, as the only God makes him infinitely valuable Holy, there is nothing more valuable than God's infinite value in himself. Systematic theology, Hodge, if you guys know him. He said this, the holiness of God is not to be conceived of as one attribute among others. It is rather a general term representing the conception of his consummate perfection and total glory. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. When the value of God is seen, when the value of God is revealed, and the holiness of God is radiant out, it fills the earth and it's called glory. God's glory, his infinite, intrinsic worth and value and greatness and preeminence and perfection and excellence of who he is in himself above all things. And when we, when we understand at least a glimpse of what God's holiness is, what God's glory is, when we turn to the book of Genesis, when we see in creation, and we see God speaking into creation, we God speaking into darkness and void, we see God creating beauty out of nothing, out of sheer power through his spoken word. He creates light, he creates water, the stars, the planets, the animals. It's a display of his worth. His creativity, his beauty, his glory. And therefore, when we see in Genesis 1 and 2, the Imago Dei, that God creates man and women in his image and likeness, he created us for his glory. That's what Isaiah 43, 6 is all about. Verse 7, whoever is called by my name, who I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. So the answer to the age-old question, what are we here for, what is the purpose it becomes very clear we were, that we were created for the purpose of displaying and representing and reflecting the glory of God to the world. Isaiah, excuse me, Psalm 96, declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all people. 1 Corinthians 10.31, so whatever you do, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. I've used this quote before, I'm going to say it again. A very succinct quote of what that means. John Piper, I think, got it right. He says this, God is most glorified in me when I am most satisfied in him. 
And that's what we see in Genesis 1 and 2, by the way. Men and women created in the Imago Dei, walking intimately with God. They were given the, the uh, authority, the job to cultivate the land, to be fruitful and multiply, to walk with their creator God. Everything was in harmony. Everything was with peace with God. There's no rebellion, no disease, no deformity, no, no racism, no hatred, no wars. Shalom the Jews call it, peace with the purpose of what they were created for, to bring God, to represent God, to display God's glory to the world. And when that was happening in creation, in Genesis 1 and 2, everything in creation was dedicated to and and experienced the worship of God. They they were walked in the very presence of God. They they were with God. God's glory was made manifest to them as they walked with them. And things like relationships and, and, and food and even sex and, and work, everything was done, created for the, for the worship of God in the display of his worth. The Westminster uh, Shorter Catechism picks it up. Question number one of the catechism. What is the chief end of man? Answer, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Now, I want to be real clear. God did not create the world because he looked around and goes, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just really lonely up here all by myself. <laughs> and some people teach that. There's no loneliness in God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit enjoyed unity and intimacy from all eternity as one God, one substance, three person. God lacked nothing as the Trinity continues to love and glorify one another from all eternity. We his creation, act out of want, out of lacking. But God is not dependent on us. There's no need in God. There's no need in God. God is and always will be totally satisfied in himself. He is complete in his goodness and his greatness. Now, in creation, what we see is God acting and, and, and creating from his fullness, in his goodness. He created out of love to create us, to bear his image, to display his glory to the world. Not because he was lonely, but out of his fullness, God creates. I think Jonathan Edwards picked that up very well when he says this. In the creature's knowing, esteeming, loving, rejoicing in and praising God, the glory of God is both exhibited and acknowledged. His fullness is received and returned. So that the whole is of God and in God and to God. And God is the beginning, middle, end in, his, in this affair, end quote. There's no greater authority, there's no greater power in the universe than God himself. Therefore, God, there was nothing outside of God that he needed. But rather, it was through his fullness that he creates in beauty and creativity and power to display his glory to the world. Here's the problem. Uh, I speak for myself. I want the history of the world to wrap around my story. That's what my ego wants. Not his story that I'm wrapped up into, but his, my story that I'm now saying, come, be a part of my story. God's glory alone means that everything God does, including creation, including all of history, is the overflow of his nature and delight and display of his glory, not mine. And that's what happened in the insurrection. Something radically changed, something radically and fundamentally changed in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve sinned. Our first parents 
were in rebellion of God. An insurrection had taken place. Rather than trust God, trust God in his promises, trust God in his fullness, trust God, they chose to disobey God. And in their insurrection, in their rebellion, listen, they became glory-starved. It was a result not only of their sin, the shame, and everything that was brought into the world because of their sin, but they were banished from the very presence of God. Genesis 3.23 makes it clear. The Lord sent Adam, this is after they sinned, from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim, a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So Adam and Eve, in their pursuit in, in their pursuit of, in their delight of the glory of God, was no longer available and therefore no longer satisfying to them. So they did what all of us do. They seek glory in other places, in creative things. Paul wrote in Romans 1, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And here's the thing, whatever's in that position of glory in your life, the weightiness, the value, the preeminence of your life, that thing, that person, the center of your life is what you worship, is what you glory in. The longing of your desires, the longing of your desires, the treasure of your heart, where your passion and enthusiasms are is where you will find that place of position, the thing and position of glory in your life. And because we are sinners, by nature and by choice, we choose to worship things other than God. The result is that we continue to worship, we continue to glory, but we glory and worship in things that are wrong. And what does the Bible call that? When you give something glory and you've sacrificed to something other than God himself, idolatry. Reformer John Calvin said this, the human heart is a factory of idols. Every one of us is from our mother's womb. Experts in inventing idols. Yes. So if you really think about it, the root of the problem is not so much have a worry problem, a gambling problem, a drug problem, a sex problem, and all these other problems. That's the, that's the tree. The root of the problem really is about idolatry. It's about worshiping things that God has made and not God himself. And the basic question that we have to ask ourselves this morning Has something or someone besides Jesus Christ taken your hearts? Your heart's functional trust, preoccupation, loyalty, service, fear and delight other than God himself. See, we are convinced because of the fall, we are convinced that we can live without the glory of God. And we are convinced that we are uh, that, that, that we could find our ultimate satisfaction of our souls within ourselves, and we think that we can satisfy ourselves with things and stuff. We're, we, we become self-absorbed and self-justifiers, thinking that the universe is really centered around me. Genesis, Cain murders <laughs> Abel, doesn't want to submit to God. Abraham, given the promises of God, doesn't trust him and wants to have his own son. His own promised son. Even the calling of Israel out of bondage that God rescued them by his glory and power and might. They turn it on themselves and say, look how good we are. It was never about Israel. It was always about the expansion and display and reflection of the glory of God to the nations. You remember the story of Moses. He goes up to Mount Sinai. God delivers them, right, from bondage and slavery. And he gives, and brings them out and Moses goes up to receive the law. 
accompanied by Joshua. He says, stay down here. Moses ascends into the mountains. You can read this in Exodus. And he's there for 40 days, and the glory of God comes upon that mountain. There's earthquakes. It's just a glorious scene, and, and Moses is, is getting revelation from God. And then in Exodus 32, not even 40 days later, they're like, we're not waiting any longer. The Israelites persuade Aaron to take them a God for themselves. And he says, all right, give me all your jewelry. We're going to make our own God. And they fashion into a golden calf and they sacrifice and they, they offer and have a feast. And a celebration is declared in direct contrast to what was right behind them, the glory cloud of the Lord. Full view, smoking mountain. All the manifestations of God's glory in their view. How could they exchange this inferior golden calf with the greater glory behind them on the mountain? Why? Because they were pursuing glory on their own terms, not on the terms of God. How do I know that? Psalm 106. They made a calf in Herob and worshipped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They exchanged God's glory, his ways, his, what he's doing for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot their Savior who had gone, who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. Idolatry is an offense against the glory of God. Idolatry is seeking glory in something other than God. Idolatry finds fulfillment or, 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 or finds God insufficient. Idolatry finds God insufficient, finds God inadequate. So we worship someone else. Something must be better. It's different for everyone. We all have our idols. It, it may be one thing for you, one thing for me. But why is that? Do you realize that the Imago Dei, we talk about this a lot, the image and likeness of God, God created us not simply to worship him. God created us by the very image of God, by the very Imago Dei as worshipers. Not just to worship him, but as part of our God-given nature to worship. It's who we are. And when we seek final and ultimate satisfaction and joy outside of God, and we look to the thing that we are worshiping to give us what only God can give us. That's why, that's why those idols are never satisfying. That's the problem. It's never satisfying. And it's not that the pursuit of worship or the pursuit of glory or the pursuit of satisfaction or joy is the problem because that's part of who we are. It's not that the heart longs for beauty and longs for joy is the problem because that's part of the Imago Dei. The issue becomes who and what is taking that place of glory in our life. And the answer is soli Deo Gloria. The scriptures are clear. God is very God-centered. He made and created us for his glory. God elected Israel for his glory. Jeremiah 13, 11. I made the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah cling to me, says the Lord, that they might be for me a people, a name, a praise, and a glory. God saves them from Egypt for his glory, Psalm 106. Our fathers rebelled against the Most High in the Red, at the Red Sea, yet he saved them for his namesake. That's his glory. They might make known his power. Isaiah 48, 9. 
even in exile. For my name's sake, I deferred my anger, he says. The Lord says, for the sake of my praise, I restrained it for you. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will give to, I will not give to another. My glory I will not give to my no- another. So why does God say that over and over? My glory, my praise, my worship. Worship me, me alone, me alone. Only take praise in me. Only take worship in me. Because we're prone to worship self. We're not God-centered people. We are self-centered people. Right? We're self, and we're going to fight that battle to the day we stand before him in the state of glorification, which we don't have time to get to. 30 years I've been walking with Christ. I'm still amazed how selfish I could be. And who's going to kill that selfishness in me? Soli Deo Gloria. Paul wrote to the church of Corinth, love is patient, love is kind, right? Love does not envy, it does not boast. It does not insist on its own way. It is not self-seeking. Love is not self-seeking. Yet God is the only, he's talking about human love. God is the only one that says, seek me, love me alone, glory in me alone, my sake alone, and not be a narcissistic lunatic. He's the only one. It was C.S. Lewis and Jonathan Edwards came to this. I, I used this quote before, but I want to say it again. Before C.S. Lewis became a Christian, he said that God was an old woman that craves compliments. <coughs> an old woman that craves compliments. But then he realized this. The most obvious fact, he said, about praise, worship, strangely escaped me. I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. The world rings with praise. Lovers praise their mistresses. Readers their favorite poets. Walkers praise the countryside. Players praising their favorite game. My whole, he says, more difficulty, more general difficulty about praise of God depended on my absurdly denying to us as regard the supremely valuable what we delight to do, what indeed we can't help doing about everything else we value. He says this, I think we delight to praise that what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. In other words, it is the fullness of our praise being brought back to us in the praise and glory of God. Jonathan Edwards simply wrote this, God is glorified not only by his glory being seen but by his being rejoiced in. When those that see it delight in it, God is more glorified than if they only see it, end quote. It's the seeing of his value, it's the seeing of his worth, is delighting in it and taking joy and pleasure is the ultimate value of your soul. Psalm 16, you make your past known to me. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. When God reveals his glory to us, which is most satisfying, valuable, and praiseworthy, and he demands that we worship him and love him and glorify him above all things, glory to God alone, it is the best thing and command he can give us. If God loves us, if God loves us the way the scripture says God loves us, then for him to say to us, worship me, glorify me alone, is the greatest thing he could ask us to do. Because he gets the glory and we get the joy. It's that simple. By seeking God's glory and praise God, you're bringing your joy to consummation. That is why glory, satisfaction, and joy is something God is seeking 
for himself and we so desperately need. We have been glory starved. And because of the fall, because of the rebellion, because of the insurrection, we are people that are seeking glory in other things. And even if they're good things, when they become the decisive, the crucial, the essential things, they become glory idols. Where do we see the glory of God? Where can we see today the beauty, the majesty, the infinite value and worth of God? It is most visibly seen at the cross. Turn to the book of Romans with me. Great book. If you're not familiar with the book of Romans, uh, you should be. Uh, I commend it to you. It's probably one of the most precise, thorough, succinct proclamation of the gospel in the New Testament. By the time we get to Romans chapter 4, Paul has made it very clear. Jew and Gentile, every single human being that has ever been born is guilty of sin, deserving God's wrath, and is accountable to God, and they are without excuse, he says, Romans 3. We can never be justified by keeping the law. We can never be justified, declared righteous by our own merit, our own law-keeping. Like Abraham, we're justified by faith, by grace, through faith alone, in the atoning sacrifice of the Lamb of God. Verses, chapters 1 through 4. Chapters 5 through 8, I'm going to give you a quick quick before we get to where we're going. Chapters 5 through 8, Paul continues this theological treatise about all the blessings. Beautiful, beautiful. Chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 8, verse 1. All the beautiful blessings of the gospel. The gospel brings peace and righteousness and joy. The gospel brings blessings to us uh, where we escape the consequences of sin. It frees us from the slavery to sin and slavery to the law. The gospel brings uh, a holiness of life through the power of the Spirit. The gospel brings and offers ultimate victory over sin, death, and hell. It's a beautiful story. It's a beautiful uh, teaching of Romans and the book of Romans. But when we get to chapter 9, Paul turns its direction, what we're going to look at, to the sovereignty of God and the work of God in salvation. And he, and he particularly picks up the story between the Gentiles and the Jews. Romans chapter 9, if you have a Bible, we're going to be there just for a minute. Romans chapter 9. Uh, Paul makes it very clear that the salvation is the work of God alone. He talks about the hardening of ethnic Israel and the grafting into the Gentile. He makes it crystal clear that it's not God who has a problem. It wasn't God who didn't fulfill his promises, chapter 9, verse 6. But it was they who were, 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 were not part of the descendant of Israel. Look at chapter 9, verse 6. But it's not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all the children of Abraham, because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. In other words, there is, there is the ethnic Israel, then there's the promise Israel, those who are trusting in the promises of God, and there are those who are not. The word of God did not fail. They did not have faith. Verse 8, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. Paul makes it very clear between the two. And then he gives us an illustration in verse 11 of Jacob and Esau. Chapter 9, verse 11. Though they were not yet born, Jacob and Esau, had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger. As written, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. You see, ultimately, is the sovereignty of God in choosing who the beneficiaries of the promise will be. And, and, and Paul 
brilliant Bible teacher, right? He's writing this and he's thinking, all right, I know when I get here, there's going to be some who's going to say, then God's not fair. If God is sovereign, God chooses, and it's his purposes, God's not fair. So Paul says, okay, well, let's deal with that question. Verse 14, chapter 9. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So, verse 16, then it doesn't depend on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I've raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whoever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, Paul's picking up what might be, people be saying, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to the molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the powder no right over the clay to make out of the same lump, one vessel for honor, honorable use, and another one for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order, for the purpose of, to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand? In other words, God is getting glory through the gospel, whether it is the pouring out of his wrath, his right and just and, 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 and good wrath upon evil, or making known the riches of his glory toward vessels of mercy, who he has prepared beforehand. Paul's really clear. Track with me, right? So just turn the page to chapter 11. So we get to chapter 11, he's arguing all this, and he says in chapter 11, verse 25, and I want you to hear this. I don't want you to be unaware of his mysteries lest you be wide in your own sight I do not want you to be unaware of the mystery brothers a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in and in this way all Israel will be saved I'm not done with them yet the deliverer will come from Zion he will banish ungodliness from Jacob and this will be my covenant with them that I will take away their sins as regards the gospel they're enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are what? Irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, Gentiles, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, the, the grafting in of the Gentiles for the Jews. So they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, everybody, that he may have mercy on all. Now, verse 33, Paul can't help himself. Paul cannot help himself with this doxology. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How unscrutable his ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who can be his counselor? Or who gives him a gift that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things to God. To him be glory forever. Amen. You see what he's saying? All glory belongs to him, not simply because who he is, because of his work of salvation. All that God has done is for him. All that God has done is done by him. That's the point. Jew, Gentile, your salvation is in any way, 
any way brought about by human will, human decision, human merit. If that were the case, you got something to glory in. But that's not the case. And since all glory belongs to God, for he alone brought about our salvation, no wonder that the greatest display, the greatest display of his worth and value is in his son, the Savior. Let's end in 2 Corinthians 4. Our gospel is veiled. Remember, Moses had covered his eyes, and there was those who, didn't, who couldn't see. It is veiled to those who are perishing in their case. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who what? Is it the image of God? You see, there's a difference when you and I ascribe glory to God. When we praise and worship God and we are giving him glory, we're not adding to his glory, we're ascribing to him glory. This is different. This display of glory to the Father is because Christ is of the same essence. He's the same being. In him, the whole fullness of deity dwells. Bodily, Colossians. Hebrew 1, he, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. 1 Corinthians 2.8, it's simply he's the Lord of glory. So the reason that the glory of Christ is the glory of God is that Christ is God. And Paul is saying is the greatest display that the work of Christ on the cross and his resurrection, the gospel, is designed by God to reveal the glory, the preeminence, the infinite worth of God in Christ himself. The gospel would not be good news if not the glorious news if not God didn't reveal glory to us. Our glory starves souls. Look at verse 6. God who said, let light shine out of darkness, shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now give me two more minutes. Just look at me for two more minutes. Let me, let me wrap this up for you. Moses was in Sinai in Exodus. God descended. His glory clouds and he speaks to Moses, the very voice of God while he was on the mountain. And Moses does what? Moses says, let me see your glory. Show me your glory. Show me your perfect, brilliant, bright, infinite greatness, unimaginable beauty, your glory. And God says, my glory is going to pass you. I'm going to put you in the rock, in the cleft and cover you, and I will shield you. My hand will be upon you until I pass by. Then I will take my hand away and you shall see my back. But my face, my panim, you shall not see. My face shall not be seen because no man will see my face and live. What is the problem? There's a barrier. There's a barrier. Again, Genesis 3. When sin entered the world, we were separated from God. We were banished from the very presence in the face of God. What did he do? He kicked Adam and Eve out. What did he put there? A cherubim with a sword. A visible reminder of the holiness and the glory of God into the presence of God. No one is allowed in Eden. No one's allowed to come into the presence of God to see his face unless you deal with the sword. And on the cross, when Jesus died as our atoning sacrifice and said, it is finished. How did he do it? By the sword. He took the justice we deserve and he died in our place. And on the cross... He completed the way into the glory presence of God. 
and died, you know the curtain, torn, the curtain was torn in two. The very presence, the very access, the very face of God, and the glory of God was made available again. That's why John says in John 1, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacled with us. We have seen his glory. Glory as the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. I'm the God on the other side of that gap. I'm I'm the way through that barrier. I'm the one who went through the sword. The very justice of God was poured out on me, and I died so that you can have access again to the Shekinah glory. I am the ultimate sacrifice. I am the glory you're looking for. I am the fulfillment of the longing of your heart. Glory in me, get lost in me, love me, pursue me, worship me, and I will satisfy your soul. What did Jesus say? That my joy may be in you, that your joy may be complete. So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the Lord of God. That's the bottom line. And the greatest display of the glory of God is Christ himself, his work, and his person. The fact that he's called dead people alive and needy sinners to himself that he's forgiven us and he loves us. And now through Christ's sacrifice and the gospel, we can treasure Christ. And that's the greatest way to bring him glory. His atoning, wrath-absorbing sacrifice, Christ and his glory, the ultimate gift and treasure of the gospel. In a free book online, a free book online called God is the Gospel, John Piper writes this. The ultimate good of the gospel is seeing and savoring the beauty and value of God. God's wrath and our sin obstruct that vision and that pleasure. You can't see and savor God as supremely satisfying while you're in full rebellion against him and he is full wrath against you. The removal of this wrath and this rebellion is what the gospel is for. The ultimate aim of the gospel is the display of God's glory and the removal of every obstacle to our seeing and savoring it as our highest treasure. Behold your God, he writes, is the most gracious command and the best gift of the gospel. If we've been chosen by grace alone, redeemed by the righteousness of Christ alone, justified through faith alone, then our worship of our God, sole Deo Gloria, will exceed just our Sunday morning praise. Sole Deo Gloria is more than a salutation at, at, at the end of our conversion to Christ. The entire life is what is called to live out as the Corium Day in the presence of God. So whatever you do, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all that you do, Soli Deo Gloria. Father, we, we pray. Lord, that, that, that is something that our hearts long for, starve for. It's what the Spirit is calling us to. And Father, we are selfish people. Grant us repentance. Grant us a, a constant reminder that it is all about you and not about us. Help us to marvel, relish, and, and treasure Jesus Christ in the midst of whatever's going on in our life, in the good times and particularly in the suffering. Lord, that we may see that you are good and your rescue of us shows forth the ultimate value and worth in yourself. Thank you, Lord Jesus for your glory, and for the revelation of the gospel by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.